We're in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, and it's the beast wants your worship. The beast with seven heads wants your worship. And I don't know if you realize this, but the seven heads were the seven kingdoms that have uh, risen in the world, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the Ten Nation Confederation, all under, and all under Satan's dominion and Satan's control. Satan wants your worship, and you are not going to give it to him. So if you would, stand for reading of God's Word. Starting in chapter 13, verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horn ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragons who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who was able to make war with him? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we know that these people in their hubris are wondering who can make war with the beast. Maybe no one on earth, but our King of kings and Lord of lords will come, the Lord Jesus Christ, and finally put down rebellion on earth, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is our blessed hope. The King is coming. Thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, open our minds. Help us to be attentive. I have to I, I, we all have to understand that this is a difficult area of Scripture, much symbolism, much symbolism. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth and help us to hear from you today things that you want us to know. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you know, the theme of Revelation is Jesus is coming. He's coming in judgment and he's coming to establish his everlasting kingdom. Now, last week we talked about Satan is a persecutor extraordinaire. And remember, he has been, there's been war in heaven. He has been summarily dismissed from heaven. And we had the illustration, remember the picture up there, that he was body slammed to earth. And he goes to earth in a rage. And what does he turn himself to? What does he put all of his focus on? The woman. And we know from past teachings and other areas of Scripture that the woman is Israel. Unquestionable. So he pursues the woman, the fleeing remnant. Remember, we had a picture of the map of Israel. And these are Jews that are fleeing from Jerusalem down to some place near Basra, Petra, in that area that God has prepared for them, a safe place. And we know the Antichrist in venomous and venomous hate is chasing these people. They are sensing his coming. And as as they close in on the people of God, the earth opens and swallows up the flood. And we realize by Scripture, interpreting Scripture, that the flood was the pursuing army of Antichrist. And Antichrist army is destroyed. And then what does Satan do? You think he gets a little depressed. You think he gets a little discouraged. He's been kicked out of heaven. He's had another defeat on earth. Oh no. Oh no. This arch enemy of ours does chapter 2 verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we were able to discern that he turns on every believing Jew and every, every tribulation believer, and he tries to kill every one of them. He is a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar from the beginning. And he is, a, he is the one that we are, is our enemy, and we are his 
absolute target, even today. Even today. Now, why did the woman flee? What was her cue to flee? And if you're in a Sunday school class, you'd all say, it's the abomination of desolation. And we learned that from Daniel chapter 9. Also, it was mentioned in Daniel chapter 11 with Antiochus Epiphany being a, a type of the Antichrist. He sets up a, a, an abomination of desolation in the temple at his time. We'll read more about him in just a few minutes. Also, Jesus mentioned the abomination of desolation in Matthew chapter 24. When you see this happening, you flee. When you see that idol being set up in the temple, you flee. You flee to your safe place. You flee to Basra. Now listen, hear this. There is always going to be pressure to conform. There's be enormous pressure to conform to the Antichrist. I mean, he's going to kill you or stop you from buying and selling and surviving in the culture and the planet unless you capitulate to him. He demands that you follow him. The pressure to cave to the culture's demands is enormous, is enormous. And I believe you realize that. In our past study, we had three Hebrew heroes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel chapter 3, who refused to bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember the story? Nebuchadnezzar had an idol of himself made of solid gold. How he pictured himself, the hubris, the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar. And he insisted that everyone bow before him. Everyone bow before him. But these three Hebrew children would not break the second commandment, which you know is, do not make yourself an idol, nor bow before an idol. They knew this, and they would not bow before Nebuchadnezzar. Now we have a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's idol on the screen. And the thing that I want you to note is this. Notice these three guys. And notice that this works this week because I put batteries in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, these, guys are, these guys refuse to bow. These are all people. You can't really appreciate it here, but they're all bowing. And these three, and this guy's encouraging, oh, bow. Bow, please bow. Your life is at stake. Bow. And these guys would not do it. And you know how Nebuchadnezzar responded? Just like any despotic ruler, he has a fit. And he approaches them this way. In a rage, in a fury, he says this in Daniel chapter 3, verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time and you hear the harp and the horn and the symphony and all that stuff, if you fall down, good. But if you do not worship this idol, if you do not worship this, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And this is the response of these three heroes in, the, in their culture at this time. They are facing imminent death. Now, look, we're facing a lot of changes in our world. Nothing like this, okay? But this is a good example for all of us. I love this scripture, and I think you do too. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this is the case, our God whom we serve, let it be known, Nebuchadnezzar, let it be known, world, our God in whom we serve. We will not serve your God, Nebuchadnezzar. We will not bow before your idol is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. 
But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Just like every demonic force does, gets in a rage and a fury because you will not bow, you will not be indoctrinated, you will not conform. And he has a fit and he fires up that furnace seven times greater and the guys firing up, they all die. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire. But you know who's in the midst of the fire, don't you? One like the Son of God. And Nebuchadnezzar is blown away. And these guys, he calls them out of the fire. And can you imagine standing before Nebuchadnezzar, not a hint of soot or smell of anything like the fire, and Nebuchadnezzar knows who God is. Nebuchadnezzar has been introduced at least two times now to the true God. He'll get introduced a third time in chapter 4. He will have a dream in Daniel chapter 4. And that dream, he sees the watchers, the angels are watching him. And he sees the tree being cut down. And he is the tree, Daniel tells him. You are the tree that's going to be cut down. And if you don't change your ways, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom will be cut down. And in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, after the warning, 12 months later, says these words. He's on his rooftop 12 months later. And he says this, Is is this not the great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty hand, my mighty power, for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in his mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King, can you imagine this? King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they, the watchers, will drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass by over you until you know that the Most High rules. Seven years would pass by. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down. Nebuchadnezzar refuses to change and then he's turned into an animal and then he realizes that God is Most High will rule. Listen to this. God is so gracious He always warns before he judges. He warns Nebuchadnezzar of his demise, and he refuses to repent. Now, just just a side note. Nebuchadnezzar refuses God's warning given by Daniel to break off his sins, to be righteous, to show mercy, to, to, to change from his prideful view of who he is to realizing who the true God is. And we have this picture of Someone's drawing of this. Isn't this just a nasty looking thing? Nebuchadnezzar grazing like an animal, fingernails, toenails like an animal, the hair like an animal, and for seven seasons, seven years, many think, that he grazed like an animal. And then his sense came to him, and he realized that God Most High reigns in the kingdom of men. Folks, all of us must learn that. Nebuchadnezzar experienced something that we mentioned last week. He experienced the law of unintended consequences. Remember this. Everyone must learn who really is in charge. And it is God. It is not me. It is not us. God hates pride. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 6.16 says this. Six things God hates. A seventh are an abomination to him. And the first one is a prideful look, a prideful look, a haughty eye. The second one, by the way, is a lying tongue. And the third one is 
someone who sheds innocent blood. Who is this describing? The great deceiver. Remember, Satan is a prideful. He fell for pride. He is a liar and he is a murderer that Jesus said in John 8, 44. This is what characterizes him. Now, listen to this. Our sovereign God will protect his people. These people are fleeing into the wilderness. They know where to go. They know that God has prepared a place for them, a safe place for them. Now, let me ask you a question. The pressure to conform that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had was enormous. The pressure to conform even today in our culture is enormous. Oftentimes when you're doing youth groups and that sort of thing, you talk about peer pressure and the kids start making fun of you. You're going to talk about peer pressure again. Peer pressure is not something just for the youth. It happens at every strata of life. We are all being pressured to conform to something. And in our culture today, we're being pressured to conform to a worldview that is the antithesis of a biblical worldview. It is the opposite of a biblical worldview. And our culture is indoctrinating us into this fervently. Now, how do we not conform to the indoctrination pressure? That's the question. And I think we had the answer to that question in Daniel also. Daniel 1.8, remember? Daniel determined in his heart. Believers, every one of us must determine in our hearts who we're going to serve. Are we going to serve the God of the Bible, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Are we going to make, serve the God of the, that we make up in our own minds or that the culture will allow us to serve? Some phony baloney God. Oh no. Daniel determined in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's delicacies. And I would say we do not defile ourselves with a worldview that is the opposite of what God, how God wants us to view our world. This week we're going to learn about a terrible man. More specific information about the Antichrist and the false prophet. And we will find out how savage and cruel these men are. And God calls them beasts. Beasts. And remember this, the beast wants your worship. Look at the all the kingdoms of the world. They were all led by Satan, who is a beast. And he wants your worship. And it is the same today. Now, verse 1, we see the beast is from the sea. The beast is from the sea. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. Now, let me stop here because some of you guys have a New American Standard Bible. Some of you guys have an NIV. That's the Alexandrian text. In the Alexandrian text, you're going to see the word he there stood instead of I stood. If it's I, it's John speaking. If it's he, then it's referring back to Satan speaking. Either way, it doesn't change the text. I believe that the correct view is he, because it refers back to the prior verses that are talking about Satan dealing with the world and chasing the remnant and that sort of thing. Then he, then he, he stood on the sand of the sea. And then John speaks. Then I, John, saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads. Now get ready for the symbolism. Ten horns, and on his horns, ten crowns, diadems, king's crowns, and on his heads, a blasphemous name. Now, what does all of this mean? Let's start out here. What is the sea? That's the first question. Well, we allow scripture to interpret scripture. So if you would, turn to Revelation chapter 17, just a few places to your right, and you're going to keep your finger there. Because we are going to be back in this, this chapter several times. 
because it really correlates quite well with chapter 13. So in chapter 17, verse 15, we read these words regarding the sea. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits. Now I'm going to explain the harlot in just a second. Where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. These are the Gentile nations. The waters are, are, are emblematic of the sea. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, you don't have to go there. You can believe me. <laughs> I've had this wrong before. But anyway, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, it says, The four winds of heaven are stirring up the great sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea. And we know that the four beasts came out from the sea. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. The four beasts came out from the sea. Gentile nations. Okay? So, with that thought, the sea is referring to Gentile nations and the Antichrist is of Gentile origin. Some people try to make an argument that the Antichrist could be Jewish. I don't think so. I think he's a Gentile. He will come out of the Roman Empire. How do we know that? Because the scripture tells us, Daniel 9, 26. After 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. He'll come out of the Roman Empire. Not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Messiah will be cut off. He will be killed, not for himself. He isn't guilty. He did not commit a murder. He did not commit a crime against Rome. He was killed, not for himself, but he died for the sins of the world. That is what it is saying there. And who is the prince who is to come? We know this historically. The prince who is to come was Rome. Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. The prince who is to come is the Antichrist. The people of the prince who is to come is Rome. Excuse me. The people of the prince who is to come is Rome. The prince who is to come is the Antichrist, the coming Antichrist. He will come out of the Roman Empire. Now I have a map here of the Roman Empire. And if you will notice, Rome conquered the world. That's what, it, that's what it's depicted as. But notice it's the world around the Mediterranean Sea. It doesn't go inland very far. He didn't ever, Rome never conquered the Parthians. It never conquered Scotland or Ireland. It conquered right around this Mediterranean Sea area. The Antichrist will come out around this sea. Now, I want you to notice something. It's going to be most germane in just a second. And Maritza, I'm going to have you come back to this picture in just a second, so just be ready. So, I want you to notice Syria, Egypt, Israel nestled in between. There will be a coming war, a 150-year war that will be fought right here that I'm going to mention in just a second, and we will go back to this screen to give us more of an idea of who the Antichrist is where he might come from. Okay, let's just put it that way. But just, I want you to think about this. Daniel's prophecies are so right on target that much of the world says that Daniel must have been written after the, after the fact. The history is so accurate that Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome came right in that order. Daniel was living during, in the Babylonian reign. He saw the Persian reign. These are hundreds of years that occurred that occurred exactly like the scripture says. But it's not just that. It gets even more specific. 
Because when Alexander the Great conquers the world, well, let me go back because I missed a couple slides here. <laughs> Daniel's prophecies are spot on, predicted hundreds of years prior to their fulfillment beforehand. Bible prophecy proves the validity of the Bible that you have. It proves that it's the only holy book in the world that you can trust. All other ones are worshiping false gods. That is what we want to know. Christianity is the one true religion. Now, back to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was the Greek ruler who was the leopard in our statue picture. He moved rapidly. That was his modus operandi. He moved rapidly, conquered rapidly. He died at an early age, somewhere in his 30s. His kingdom was divided between four generals. He had five generals. But Scripture is so accurate that it tells you in the book of Daniel there were four divisions of his kingdom between four generals. Not the five, the four. They were Cassander, Lysimius, they're irrelevant to our discussion. But the next two are very relevant because they have to do with the nation of Israel. God's focus is Israel. The ones that are relevant that have to do with the nation of Israel. They are Seleucus, had Syria and Babylon, and Ptolemy had Egypt and Arabia. They had a 150-year war for supremacy. Now back to the map, Maritza. And again, this war, you had, the, you had it right there. Back to This war was fought between Seleucids, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. This was the battleground, Israel. After 150 years, Ptolemy's strong for a time, Seleucus is strong for a time, and it goes back and forth until a final guy rises up called Antiochus Epiphany, who happens to be a Syrian. A Syrian. He's a type of Antichrist coming out of Syria. So, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 21 through 35, we're introduced to this despicable person that hated the Jewish people. And I just want to make a couple comments about him. This won't be on the screen or in your notes, so just please hear. Antiochus Epiphany, first of all, was a Syrian who was a type of the Antichrist. Why do I say that? Because he set up an abomination of desolation in the temple just like Antichrist will do. He does that in Daniel 11.31. Antiochus hates the Jews just like Antichrist. We see that in Daniel 11.28. Antiochus, interestingly enough, they're so close in how, the, how this type fulfills itself, that Antiochus rises to power slowly through intrigue, through mystery, through conniving. And he slowly ascends to power just like Antichrist does. Slowly ascends to power. And he's evil personified just like Antichrist. And he's of Syrian origin. Now look at Islam came into effect in 600 A.D. around there. This is way before 600 A.D. Antiochus was not a Muslim. But the Antichrist could fulfill the type of coming out of Syria. It's just a could. We don't know. Now, I don't plan on really knowing this guy very well. Because I believe we get raptured from the church. The church gets raptured. However, both of these guys are said to ascend slowly. So the astute Bible student may be able to discern this person 
as they come to power that, ha, this person has a lot of answers and the world is flocking to this person, this person very, very well might be the Antichrist. You might be able to discern that because you are Bible students. So, Antichrist will come out of the great sea and it'll be like Antiochus. Now, the seven heads and the ten horns. Now, if you've, if you've checked out for a second, I see most of you are actually checked in, so this would be time to really listen, okay? Because this gets a little tough here, okay? Who are the seven heads? That's the question. The seven-headed beast. Well, we were introduced to this seven-headed beast in Revelation 12.3. But now it comes to its peak. The heads represent seven world kingdoms, which culminate as the beast as the seventh one. And it had not yet come in John's day. Now, Daniel chapter 17, verses 9 through 10, will allow us to have Scripture help us interpret Scripture. So if you would join me, please read with me verses 9 and 10 in chapter 17. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now we're introduced to a woman. I'll briefly explain her in just a second. There are also seven kings. Five had fallen. Now this is a time, a John's time. So five had fallen. One is, is Rome, and another has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. When that final kingdom comes, it will continue for a short period of time. Everybody with me so far? Okay, well, let's explain this. So, the seven heads are seven mountains and seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and another has yet to come. These are world kingdoms controlled by Satan. Remember, everyone born into the world, every little baby born into the world is born into the kingdom of darkness and must be extracted from that kingdom forcibly by Jesus Christ when one comes to believe in Jesus. Okay, we, re we remember that. We remember that. We, we talked about Colossians. He, he has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That, that delivered was a, a forceful word. A forceful word. So, that is the reason why everyone that gets born into the, into the world are born with a dead spirit, first of all, and that spirit has to be brought to life. And the only way it's brought to life is by being born again. We use that term in Christendom, and people often wonder, what does it mean? It simply means that I'm born with a dead spirit, and I have to be given a live spirit. My spirit has to come to life. And the only way that it can happen is by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior, believing that He died for you, receiving the gift of salvation, you have eternal life, the Spirit of God comes inside of you and in, quickens or makes alive your spirit. That's, the, that's what happens when you get born again. That's just a side note so you know what's going on. So the seven beasts, the beast kingdoms are this. Now, bear with me. The kingdoms that rose up, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece is the fifth. Five are, five are. One has fallen. The five have, all five have fallen. One is, that would be Rome at the time of this writing, at the, at the time of, of John's writing. The one to come is the ten-nation confederation, the one-world empire. Every one of these kingdoms was immersed in the worship of false gods. False gods. 
Now, who is the woman? The woman sits on the seven mountains. Who is the woman? Just briefly, we'll get into this more in depth in our next, when we get to chapter 17. The woman is the harlot world religious system. There will be a one world religious system that will come to power during the first three and a half years. Now, that's very important. There will, be, there will be this syncretism, this coexisting. So it'll permeate the earth, earth during the first half of the tribulation. And remember, I used the word syncretism, and we defined it. Remember, it's, a, it's an amalgamation of beliefs. All these religions are going to come together under one umbrella and have a like belief. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's where we get the coexist sign. That we're all coexisting together. This is where it reaches its peak during this, this future time. What you need to know is that the beast, the Antichrist, will hate this system. You know why he hates this system? Because he wants all worship directed to him. He doesn't want it disseminated throughout the world. That's the whole purpose of the abomination of desolation. So it's all directed at him, no one else. No one else. The false prophet will rise up, will, will, will create this image in the, in the temple, the abomination of desolation, direct all worship towards the Antichrist. The beast wants no competitors. So that is the, that is the seven heads. Now the ten horns with ten crowns. And again, let's allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We were first introduced to this concept in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. We won't go there. There's a better description in Daniel 17, verse 12 through 13. So follow along with me, if you would. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they will receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Now, what does that mean? That means that these ten kings are going to come to power in the future. Remember, John, John is seeing this. This is going to happen. This is going to happen in the future. And they will have power for a short period of time. These kings will be of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Now, we know that three of them will rebel, be subdued, and then they will all be of one mind giving their power to the beast. These are the ten toes of part clay and part iron that we saw in Daniel's vision. Now, you get to see this again. We have seen this in the past, both of them. This is, this is Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the king, coming kingdoms. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And this is the ten-nation confederation, not very well illustrated here, but it is the toes, the coming seventh kingdom. Now, one of the things that you want to know about this is that there is a stone, and we know from Scripture that that stone is the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes back, he defeats all of these kingdoms, and he will crush this final kingdom, and the whole thing comes tumbling down. A stone smote the image upon his feet and became a mountain and filled the whole earth, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Daniel 2.34, verse 35, and verse 44. So we went through this in the past. You are familiar with this picture if you've been with our study. This is Jesus Christ coming back and establishing his kingdom and destroying the kingdoms of this world. So, Isaiah 9.7 says, 9, says this. Remember, it's the Christmas verse. 
And part of that is of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. When Messiah comes back and sets up his kingdom, it will start with a thousand year millennial kingdom, but then it will extend into eternity forever. It is an everlasting kingdom. No more corrupt earthly kings. No more lawlessness supported by governors and governments. No more random chaos that will be going on in the earth. The King of kings and the Lord of lords will set up his kingdom. Now verse 2. The dragon gave him his power. The dragon gave him his power. 13 verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. Please hear this. Antichrist is Satan's man. He's the man of the hour. And Satan gives him power, throne, and authority. Now why the leopard, the bear, and the, and the lion picture again? Again, these are symbolic of satanic, powerful satanic kingdoms, world kingdoms. Greece, Persia, and Rome. But if you notice, if you're the astute Bible studiers that I think you are, you'll notice that they're in reverse order. Why is that? John is seeing these kingdoms from future into the past. So he first sees Greece, then he sees Persia, then he sees Rome. Daniel is viewing it from the past into the future. Oh, what did I say? Bab- Thank you, Babylon. Let me do that again. You can exit. Thank you, David. Yeah, so Greece, Persia, Babylon. There we go. Thank you. It's good Bible students, yes. And then and Daniel seeing it into the future. Babylon, Persia, Greece. So, so that's, that's, how that, that's the reason that is in that reverse order. Each kingdom, though, takes on the characteristics of the previous kingdom. So when Persia defeated Babylon, it took on a lot of Babylon. When Greece took on Persia, it took on a lot of Greece. When Rome defeated Greece, it just changed the name of the gods, took on the same gods. And the ten-nation confederation will be an amalgamation of them all with Satan adding his power directly to it. We see that the, that the Babylon, Persia, Greece, and the satanic power will come to fruition in the future. Each kingdom takes on the previous one, builds on the other. The final kingdom, Rome, is the most dreadful of all. Verse 3 gets into something even more strange. The Antichrist is killed and then resurrected. Killed and then resurrected. Read with me. Verse 3. And I saw one of his heads. Now remember, there's seven heads. Antichrist will be the seventh head. That's the one that will be killed. The seventh head. As if it had been mortally wounded. That's an idiom for death and resurrection. And his deadly wound, deadly, was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So, please follow closely. The next verse I'm going to read you will sound like a riddle. And I will unravel the riddle. Just hang on. So, Revelation 17.11 will help us understand a little bit more, I hope. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. 
Now, how do you like those apples? Just keep reading, because <laughs> if you're doing a study in Revelation yourself, you're going to go, what in the world does that mean? So, he is the eighth, he's the eighth head. He's of the seven. So, remember the seven nations, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, ten nations. He's the seventh one, the seven nations. He becomes the eighth. He becomes the eighth. But yet, he is of the seventh. He is going to be overpowering the seventh. So, that's what you want to know. The eighth will be Antichrist taking over the seven. Now, what about the mortal head wound? Antichrist is killed and resurrected. Some believe that this is a false resurrection, a, a sneaky thing that Antichrist tries to put, that Satan tries to, to slip through the people. But I don't believe so. I think this is a real resurrection. Why? Let's allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So 17.8 says this, the beast that you saw was, he was living, and is not. What does that mean? He's dead. And will ascend out of the bottomless pit? That's resurrection. But if you hear bottomless pit, and you're a Bible student, this might prick your mind and say, what? I thought only angels went into, fallen angels went into the bottomless pit. Antichrist is a man. Why is he going to the bottomless pit? More in just a second. Verse 1711 says this, Antichrist goes to perdition, destruction. Now, perdition is the state of a person after death when they're going to hell. Destruction. It seems that Antichrist actually dies and is resurrected by Satan. Now, the question that you must ask yourself, if you're really astute into this, is the following question. Why does the Antichrist go into the bottomless pit in 17.8? This creates a lot of problems because humans don't go into the bottomless pit. Remember, when a human dies and they are not saved, remember, you are saved. The instant you die, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We've done studies on this before. Paradise was empty. That's in heaven now. But torment isn't. Torment still exists. When a person dies that is not in Christ, they immediately go into torment. A holding tank before the great white throne and the ultimate lake of fire. So that's what you want to know. So why is this human in the bottomless pit? Now, Arnold Fruchtenbaum has an opinion on this. Now, please bear with me. This is his opinion. It is supported by a few other people, but it is an extreme opinion, but it's worth hearing. So hear this. Now, he believes that Antichrist is the product of the offspring of Satan and a Roman woman. Now, why does he believe that? He goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The Proto-Evangelium. Remember, Proto is first. Evangelium is gospel. It's the first gospel. And then in that, we see this. I will put enmity, hatred. He's talking, this is Satan's consequence. Between you, Satan, and the woman who we know to be Israel. And between your seed, Satan, Satan's seed, the Antichrist, and her seed, the woman's seed, which is Messiah, singular seed. He, Messiah, shall bruise your head. Death blow to you, Satan. But you will bruise his heel. You're going to cause him a lot of trouble. 
But Satan, you will be killed by the Lord Jesus Christ. A head, you'll be, he will bruise your head. So, he relates this to that whole first gospel in Genesis 3.15. And again, the seed is singular for both. If the woman is, has, has a seed, is Messiah, and Satan has a seed, and he believes that would be Antichrist. Again, not taken by everybody, but kind of worth at least thinking about. This is true. The following, Satan does have a satanic trinity that he copies from God. Remember, Satan is the counterfeit father. The Antichrist is the counterfeit son. The false prophet is the, is the counterfeit Holy Spirit. Remember, the false prophet directs all worship to the Antichrist, just like the Holy Spirit directs all, all worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's also a counterfeit sealing. Remember, when you were saved, born again of the Spirit, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit for ownership and authority and security and that sort of thing. Well, Satan has a counterfeit sealing with the mark of the beast. And this mark of the beast seals someone to belong to him, making allegiance to him. He will have authority over them, ownership over them. If Arnold Fruchtenbaum is correct, and I don't know that he is, you have to struggle through this yourself, this would make Antichrist a nephilim part angel and part human. It may be one of the reasons he's so influential and so powerful and so dynamic. It's the reason he sends out of the bottomless pit. Now, another view, and this is kind of a view that I kind of more embrace, at least it comes down to my level. <laughs> Could it be that the possessed Antichrist, he's possessed by Satan. He has the head wound. He, he, he is they're, they're meshed as one. And that is the reason he goes into the bottomless pit. He is possessed by Satan, and then Satan resurrects him. In either case, struggle with it as you may, as I have tried to struggle with it. How does, how do the, how does the world, how do the earth dwellers respond to Satan that allowed this miracle? All the world marveled and followed the beast. Remember, is at this point in the middle of the tribulation that Satan possesses the Antichrist the middle of the tribulation. He's been kicked out of heaven, and now he's in full control of Antichrist. And it's at this point where I think he performs all those miraculous signs and wonders that we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that mesmerize the world and have them buy into the great delusion. The great delusion. We've been to that verse many times. Now, I want you to think about something. Thinking about signs and wonders. How many people today are chasing the next miracle, the next move of the Spirit, the next great signs and wonder thing? Satan can perform miracles. Now, Satan can perform amazing miracles, genuine, mind-blowing miracles, and I would advise you, do not follow the miracle train. Follow the Lord Jesus Follow what is written in Scripture. This you can count on. A lot of people count on their experience. I've had an experience. Well, Satan's going to give a lot of people a lot of experiences. And they're going to be false. 1 John 4.1 says this, For you discerning Bible students, test the spirits. Test the spirits whether they are from God. Because they're not all from God. Test the spirits. How do you test them? 
Is what they're saying congruent with the Word of God? Is what the miracle, the miracle that happened, is it pointing someone to God? Is it pointing someone to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it pointing them towards the miracle worker or to another God? That's what you want to discern. Now, Andy Woods in his work has this, oh, thank you, Maritza, has this picture. Now, these are all miracles that Satan does. Okay, you can look them up on your own, but the one I want you to focus on is this one right here. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Turn there with me if you would, because I think it'll be worth your, your journey and will help you to be a more discerning Bible student. So Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. This is a warning from God regarding miracles. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, <coughs> excuse me, that would be a miracle. And that sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods. Oh, oh, this is a true miracle, a true sign or a wonder, and let us go worship someone other than the true God, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And you know what he says to do to that prophet in verse 5? That prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God. For the nation of Israel, if there's a false prophet that comes in and does something that says, follow Molech, follow Baal, follow the Asherahs, follow these false gods, and they do these miracles and you're mesmerized by them, don't do it. They're false. They're getting to worship a false god coming from a false source. Do not follow the miracle train. Do not. That is a warning. Finally, Satan possesses the Antichrist more on that in verse 4 of our study. So they worship the dragon. That's, that's the earth dwellers. That's the ones who marveled in the previous verse. They worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is to able to make war with him? Notice they worship the dragon by worshiping the beast. It's an in indication that there's a possession that is going on here. So the earth marveled and directs this worship to whom the dragon, the dragon, it gives credence that the Antichrist is possessed. And the world is head over heels in love with the Antichrist. And they say, who is like the beast? Who can do these things? Look, at he's done them right before our eyes. And we saw it with our own eyes. We saw this. And we believed the beast. Who is able to make war with the beast? Well, I'll tell you who can make war with the beast. Skip, skip to, to Revelation chapter 19, and you'll see that King Jesus makes war against the beast. King Jesus. He's king. Of, he will decimate the beast and the false prophet. Throw them into the lake of fire in Revelation 19.20. And by the way, he will bind Satan for a thousand years. Throw him into the pit where he belongs. In Revelation 20, verse 1 and 2, one messenger angel accomplishes that. This one that will make war against the beast is the second person of the Trinity. He's the Son of God. He is Jesus Messiah. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. 
And that will be a time for an amen. Amen, yes. For now, Satan will be getting what he's always wanted. He's always wanted worship and adoration, hasn't he? He always wanted to be the one that stood out. Stood out in the crowd and, and worship me and notice me. Two people in Scripture that we know of have been possessed by Antichrist. Two people in Scripture. They are called the sons of perdition. Son of perdition. Number one was Judas in John 17, 12. Called the son of perdition. And the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 is called the son of perdition. Both possessed by Satan himself. Most demon possession is lower level guys. Satan is, doesn't want to be bound up in one person. But now he does. Because that's where he's, he's excluded. He's exclusively dealing with planet earth in, anti, in, in Antichrist. has all the power. So he focuses all his power there. Now in closing, the beast wants your worship. Remember the seven heads which our seven world kingdoms have always wanted your worship. For you not to worship the true God, but the false God. Seven heads, ten horns, Antichrist rising from the dead. I got to admit, this is some crazy sounding stuff. I mean, we would agree that this is kind of weird. But listen to this. I believe that we are a privileged people. That we are living at such a time that we could actually see the coming of Messiah. Because we've lived in that time when the Jews became a nation in 1948. We lived at the time when man has the power to totally annihilate himself on planet Earth with the advent of nuclear weapons. And now we can see it, even be, it can even happen with an out-of-control virus. You get the wrong virus that humans can't deal with, Earth could be wiped out. Earth could be wiped out. Look, at the revelation of Jesus Christ is this. It's the unveiling of future events and God wants you to know what's coming. He wants you to know. It's the, it's a, he's revealing. It's the revelation. The things that will happen shortly in Revelation 1.1. That means in rapid succession. Once these things start to happen, they'll happen rapidly. And I would suggest to you, from March until today, your world has changed rapidly. And who knows that this thing isn't going to keep crescendoing. We don't know. I'm not saying I'm not a... I've got no prophets. I don't have God speaking to my ear. But we're living in a strange time here. We have to at least acknowledge that. And I also want you to remember this. We're in an election that's a lot of tumult. Daniel 2.21 is good for us. It's God raises up kings. And God brings down kings. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up, rises up, raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Let that just resonate with you. Those who have understanding. The key is understanding. You study Bible prophecy. You are some of the few who are brave enough to study Bible prophecy. Most people won't do this. It's too scary. It's too uncomfortable. There's too much symbolism. But you can see the symbolism can be found if we study and allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And I will admit, this study is not easy. The journey is difficult. And I would say, current events are scary. Current events are scary. Rightly dividing the word of truth is difficult. We must dig for the gold, and this will take time, this will take effort, and this will take commitment. 
commitment, something that people do not want today. We're the microwave society. Give it to me right now. Give it to me in the short version. You can't do it with this. You have to dig for the truth. This is not for the apathetic Christian. This is not for the lukewarm Christian. This is not for the lazy Christian. They'll never do it. This is not for the, for the Christian who wants to feel good all the time. The feel-good Christianity that we have in America today. Make me feel good because the whole thing is about me. That is not what this is about. Powder puff Western Christianity. Those who are committed to the process, though, are given a promise. A promise in Revelation 1.3. For those who will claw, for the few who will dig, says this, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep... And I don't know if you remember that word keep was tero. And that means keep watch. Keep watch for the signs, people. Keep watch. That's the admonition for his people, for his church. It's never to hide. It's never to pretend it's not happening. It's never to, it's, it's never to go into a corner. For the time, which are written in it, for the time is near. That word blessed is markarios. means fully satisfied. Fully satisfied. Content. Pleased. Complete. Complete because God indwells you. Complete. We may not like the changes that we're seeing. And I would admit, I do not like the changes that I have seen. I understand. But it's great to know that you know that you know that God has a plan and it's being worked out. And you who study know that plan. When you begin to feel a bit unsettled, a little bit, undis- little bit dis- disturbed in your spirit, just remember our study. Just remember, God is sovereign. Just, you can just say it to yourself. God is sovereign. He's in control. God is sovereign. He's in control. God is sovereign. He's in control. I can't figure out why things happen in this world. I can't figure why bad things happen to people. I, can- I don't understand it all. I don't pretend But God is sovereign and in control. He is working out his plans according to his will. When you begin to feel this way, allow God to enter into your chaos, into your disturbance, and bring you peace in the midst of your storm. Every one of us has this. None of us are excluded from this. We are all in some sort of chaos, just at different levels. Just at different levels. Remember, we are simply sheep, and sheep like still waters. Don't you like the calm in life? Don't you like that just that moment of time when there's calm? Stay close to your, to your shepherd, folks. Calm waters are found close to your Savior. Now, we have a pastoral scene here. Most of you have already seen it with your handout, but I just love stuff like this. Nice, calm waters, little puddle here, little frogs jumping in, little chirping going on. Shepherd here, sheep are just so content. Got another shepherd here just kind of watching over everybody. It's so pastoral, so calm. This is how we want to live right here. But then there's the truth. Then there's the truth. Let's be honest. Our lives are not always pastoral, which means calm, tranquil. You may, in fact, be in the middle of a storm. Sometimes our lives are stormy, Sometimes they are scary. Sometimes they are downright unsettling. And we don't like it. Your life may look a lot like the storm-tossed sea. 
there is a painting that is entitled Peace. And I want you to notice this. This is chaos. But in the midst of this chaos, there's a little dove hunkered down in the rocks. And I want you to hear what the writer has to say, what the originator of this has to say. Listen to his words. It, this picture depicts waves crashing against the jagged rocks. It portrays the violence of a crushing storm. It seems anything but peaceful. But down in a small corner of the painting, tucked away in the rocks is a little bird sitting on her nest, totally oblivious to the raging storm that is all about. Now that is peace. That is peace in the midst of God holding you in the palm of his hand. It's raging around you. That's the reality of life. That's the reality of life. But we can find our peace place. No matter the circumstances, we can choose peace. Remember Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard. Remember that guard? A sentinel. Stand guard over your hearts and over your minds. You have the peace of God available to you to stand guard over your thoughts. You know how you do it? He goes on in 4.8. You think about whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, that's what you think on. In a changing world, in crashing life circumstances, in pandemics, election chaos, every one of us is affected by this stuff, lawlessness, lockdowns, health crisis, Satan's manipulations. God knows everything you're going through. And God has a peace place just for you. All we need to do is walk in what he has given to us. You know, there's a song. When peace like a river attendeth my ways, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Sila simply means pause and reflect. Peace in the midst of the storm. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we know that there's incredible things that are coming, but we know that we can have peace in the midst of all these changes because we are in your family. We're just temporary citizens here. We're just passing through. This is not our home. And when we become uneasy with here, we are realizing that we are earth dwellers. We are heaven dwellers. We don't belong here. We don't fit into this system. But you've placed us here for such a time to impact this system that is running away from you. May we give words of truth and maybe bring into some lives of chaos the peace of God that passes all understanding by simply knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. To believe that he died on the cross for your sins. To receive the gift of salvation. And to realize Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but oh, my Jesus washed it white as snow. And forever we say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. And thank you, Father, for the giving God, giving his Son so that we can live with you forever. Thank you, Father.
for your plan. Thank you for your word. Even in the scary parts of scripture, we can have peace. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.